Good afternoon. It's good to be together today and uh, singing those praises. Boy, I hope you like that last song, Dying for Me. Man, if that doesn't impact you, you might ask if you're really spiritually alive. <laughs> well, it's a blessing to be together, and I just wanted to extend a special invitation to those that are visiting. We have a special fellowship meal. We're saying goodbye to um, one of our deacons and his family who took a a new job in Nashville, Tennessee, kind of an an answer to some prayers. We're really happy for them. We're really sad for us, but uh, we'll be saying goodbye, and we brought plenty of food, so please feel free to stay, hang out. We got seating outside, inside, and um, I think you'll be blessed. Um. We're going to be completing Nahum chapter 3. If you want to go back to that little minor prophet book that JT read part of that chapter, um, that's, we're going to be tackling the, the entire chapter, God willing. And then, as I mentioned last week, we will begin a long journey in the Gospel of John um, on September 11th is when that series will begin. So you can be praying, preparing yourself even for that Well, obviously this book is directed to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh and Babylon were sister cities in wickedness. By the time the book of Revelation was written, both of these cities were utterly destroyed. Babylon is symbolic of all the cities that have opposed God in their wickedness. And thus we read throughout even Revelation And for example, in 17.5, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. You see, it's it's, it's sort of a type, it's a name that that all the other cities that have rebelled against God could be lumped into that. And then in 18.2, in fact, just turn back to Revelation 18, briefly. Revelation 18 and verse 2, you see, and he cried with a mighty voice saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison for ever, every unclean spirit and a prison for every unclean and hateful bird. So you have this term here, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. The fall is marked by three potent laments. Whoa, whoa. I don't know what the ESV did with that. Alas, alas, I think I like woe much better. And so even in our text today, you have woe to the bloody city. The bloody city, woe. But you have, anyway, this threefold lament that's doubled with a double woe. And 1810, it's, it's directed towards the merchants and the, king, or the kings, and then to the merchants, and then finally to the captains of the sea. Each one marked by that term that it's fallen in an hour, laid to waste. And that's not a literal one hour time. What it is, is it's a short period of time. In other words, judgment comes swiftly and without warning. And then, of course, in Revelation 19, 1, you see where it transitions to the scene in heaven after these things i heard something like a loud voice of the great multitude in heaven saying hallelujah salvation and glory and power belong to our god well during the days of nahum the prophet nineveh had become a proud arrogant superpower as it were they were ruthless they were 
bloodthirsty, and they'd become arrogant. And God says through the prophet Nahum that you will come to an utter end. Prepare yourself. But, you know, there's an irony to the proud and arrogant. They, they don't ever really take those warnings. And the city had become a superpower. Reminds me of, I mentioned last week, the Titanic, when that crew member got on on that maiden voyage and, and said, God himself couldn't sink this ship, right? God, God humbles the proud, and he humbles the pride of this city by destroying it utterly. We saw in chapter 1 that victory hymn dedicated to the divine warrior. It's Yahweh who fights for his people. He's a jealous God. He's avenging God. He's avenging to God's enemies. We saw in chapter 1, verse 7, which is 7 and 8 are the key verses of the book. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but... With an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. And so the, the lesson here with the book is that God will vindicate his people. He, he's, he's a good God. He takes notice of when God's people are being persecuted and his vengeance will come and often very swiftly Chapter 2, you have this again. It's, it's vivid descriptions of this judgment that's going to happen. And it, it says there that it, it would come to a complete end. And God says, I am against you, declares the Lord. Well, let's, um, I'm going to read. I have verses 12 to the end read. I'm going to read 1 to 11, and we'll jump in. The title of the message is Crimes and Punishment. Because really what the prophet does is list out the crimes that Nineveh is accused of, and then we get a sneak peek into the judgment that will come. So let's read together. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and Bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses, and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many holotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will lift up your skirt over your face, and I will show to the nations your nakedness, and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile. I'll set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? Implication, there are none. Are you better than Thebes, which was situated by the waters of the Nile? Water surrounding her, a rampart was the sea. Its walls consisted of the sea. Ethiopia was her might. Egypt, too, without limits. Put and Lebanon were among their helpers. And yet she became an exile and went into captivity. And her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for the honorable men, and all her great men were bound with fetters. You too will become drunk. 
you will be hidden and you will search for a refuge from the enemy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the privilege of looking into perhaps one of the neglected books in the canon of Holy Scripture. We thank you that we can learn these lessons from this minor prophet Nahum. Lord, we ask that you would help us as we go through, that you would remind us that you are a good God, that you will execute justice upon the enemies of your people. Lord, may that comfort us, those of us that are in Christ even this day. And if any be outside of Christ, may it be a stern warning that he will not wink at sin and that all of God's enemies will be judged in due course. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Nahum teaches us that God is holy, that God is just, that God is omniscient, that he sees all things, nothing escapes his notice, he is not blind to sin, but also that he is long-suffering towards his people. Nahum writes to encourage God's people that God is on the throne. He will defend them like a divine warrior. Do you really believe that? If you're his child today, that he will defend you. Even in the midst of difficulties and trials, and some of us even this very week have had things happen to us that we were completely unplanned, things that laid us low, things that humbled us before his holiness. But God is sovereign and brings each trial for a reason that he might work in us that which is good. He knows what we need. Our Lord Jesus Christ is ultimately that divine warrior. If we could have went a little further, Revelation 19.11, And I saw the heavens open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages wars. Back in 1939, the Amistad sailed for Cuba with a shipload of African slaves. The captives escaped from their chains and actually took over the ship. Of course, there was a movie made about this from the 1990s, I believe. But if you know anything of the story, um, U.S. Navy ships uh, captured that overtook the ship, and these slaves were imprisoned. Spain tried to persuade the then-president Van Buren to extradite them to, back to Spain for, so that they could be charged with piracy and murder. But the abolitionists succeeded in having the case tried in the United States, first the lower courts, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. It took two years later, in 1941, the Supreme Court ruled 7-1. to one. Justice Joseph Story delivered the majority opinion, writing that there does not seem to us to be any ground for doubt that these Negroes ought to be deemed free. And why do I share that? Well, Nahum 3 reiterates the justice of God, the judgment that's coming upon Nineveh. It poetically adjusts, addresses the reasons for it, that in short, her crimes, that it's been known as a city of blood, guilty of cruelty and pride and idolatry and deceit and even witchcraft, that God would bring a, to them a complete end. And even the shamelessness of how they committed their sins, they would be in turn shamed as their skirt, as it were, would be lifted up. So today we're going to look at this entire chapter, believe it or not, um, under three points. The first 
is this, Nineveh's crimes leading to her ruin. That's verses 1 to 7. Uh, Nineveh was arrogant and proud. That's 8 to 11. And then we'll see the, that last section, 12 to 19, the third section, that Nineveh would be severely wounded, but with none to display sympathy to her. So, first of all, verses uh, 1 to 7, Nineveh's crimes lead to ruin. It, it begins with this cry of woe for the city. It's, it's like that Revelation 18 scene of woe. God is against this aggressive brutality and witchcraft. Verses 1 to 3, the city of blood will have shame, which it has afflicted upon the nations, repaid to it with a terrible massacre. The bloodthirstiness of the Assyrians was unmatched. They had a huge reputation in their day. It would become mocking, a mockery and a spectacle unto others that look on. What are their crimes here? You see, woe, and then there's four crimes right away listed. The bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage, and her prey never departs. There, there's four things right there. And, 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 and so, woe to the city. Even previous kings throughout history of Assyria um, were brutal. Um, I don't even know how to pronounce this one. Ashur Aspiral, the second, back about 200 years before the writing here, he wrote this. I killed a great number of them and cut off the heads of 260 with my sword and formed them into pillars. I flayed all the chief men who revolted. I covered the pillar with their skins. I impaled some on stakes. I spread their skins all over the walls of the city and cut off limbs of the officers. I cut off noses and ears and tongues. And he just goes on to boast of this brutality that he reveled in. You see, Nineveh had become trigger happy, you might say, to use this common terminology. That all the nations of the world would send gifts to try to appease this uh, wicked city. It was full of lies, full of deceit. She deceived the nations. You remember uh, Sennacherib from 2 Kings 18. We looked at that a couple weeks ago, but um, that was about, this was earlier. But he even lied and told Hezekiah, you know, how did he say it? He said, um, don't trust in your God. Yahweh cannot protect you from us, the Assyrians. So full of deceit and a biblical example even there. Nineveh sees the vision of a hostile army bursting upon Nineveh. The destruction that comes, actually the connection uh, in the original from, from the end of verse 1 to verse 2, it just throws you right in. There's no uh, con- connection at all. Like, like, and then this will happen. It's as though it's, it's, we get, we're given the impression that Nahum is swept away into the vision himself. He's like a news anchor reporting everything that he's seeing, the flashes and the sounds the writer wants us to hear what's happening here with the way the language is structured. We see the sights and the sound of the battle. He wants us to hear what is happening. And look at verse 2. The noise of the whip. Watch, right? You know what a whip is? You know how loud that can be? The noise of the whip of the charioters and the rattling of the chariot wheels. The word that's used there for rattling is the same word for earthquake in the Hebrew. And, and, and so this is, this is tremendous. The rattling of the wheel, the galloping of the horses and how loud that could be. The bounding chariots that are coming. 
the conflict that sets upon them. And then in verse 3, horsemen charging, swords flashing. Look at that, swords flashing and spears gleaming. We can assume this happened in the middle of the day in the bright sunshine, but so majestic is this battle, so intense that the swords were flashing even in, in the noonday sun. And look at the result. Again, there's repetition in this prophecy, but look at the result, the end of verse 3. You have, what you have here is, is four repetitive lines regarding the dead bodies that would be there. You see it there? Many slain, massive corpses, countless dead bodies, and they stumble over the dead bodies. The, the words describe the consequence or effect of the attack. The slain men fallen in abundance. So many corpses that no one can even get around the city without stumbling over them. Why is such detail necessary? I think John Calvin helps us. He says, all these things were intended for the purpose of fully convincing the Israelites that Nineveh, however much it was supplied with wealth and power, was yet approaching its ruin, for its enemies would prevail against it. So, it takes us to our second subpoint, verses 4 to 7 here, God's judgment on the harlot of the nations. We see something now, so we've, the, the crimes sort of listed there. Now we're, now we're getting a picture of the character, as it were, of the city. God likens Nineveh to a prostitute selling her wares, given to sorcery, sorcery and witchcraft. I like the New English translation best for verse 4. It says, Because you have acted in wanton, like a wanton prostitute, a seductive mistress, who practices sorcery, who enslaves nations by her harlotry and entices people by her sorcery. In fact, in the ruins, archaeologists have discovered um, in later years, obviously, but that there was thousands of tablets covered to show the abysmal superstition of this city. Hundreds of sorcery incantations that this city was known for. Everything from moths to swallows to pigs to cows to rats to sparrows and to doves. And of course, we have in 2 Kings chapter 9, just this, you know, as far as the witchcrafts go, it's, it was known for that. When Joham saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, What peace, so long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts, which are so many. And so, it says here, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries. And really, you've got that picture in Revelation 17. On her forehead was written the mystery, Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes, and the earth's abominations. So seduction and temptation. Even this last phrase, um, sorry, second to last phrase, the third phrase here, and sells nations by her harlotries. I, I think there's some indication what we would call human trafficking that was going on. Human trafficking is a, a, a terrible thing that is alive and well, sadly, in our wicked world. I read a book about 15 years ago called Not for Sale. It's about the global slave trade and how to fight it. It's an excellent book. I forgot to fetch the author's name, but you could Google that if you have interest in this. But in the book, it sets forth that there's estimated, you know, obviously estimated and probably conservatively, 30 million 
human slaves, even at the time of the writing about 15 years ago. Everywhere from boys and girls to countries like Nepal, Rome, Pakistan, Africa, but even evidence of some 30,000, I believe, in San Francisco alone and San Diego and every major city. There are people being trafficked. The United Nations defines human trafficking as this. It's an abbreviation, but to give you an idea that globally, this is how it's defined, the recruitment, transportation, transfer, and harboring or receipt of persons by means of threat or use of force or other forms of coercion or abduction of fraud or deception or abuse of power. Skipping down, the exploitation of prostitution and other forms of sexual exploitation, forced labor, slavery, and servitude. You see, the Assyrians <laughs> would say, that's us. We're good at it, right? They were wicked. One of the commentators, Cook, says, like modern human traffickers, Nineveh recruited vulnerable people, transported them out of their native land, forced them to commit spiritual prostitution and prostitution, and punished them for any disloyalty received uh, in payment return. The seemingly endless supply of captives replenished the ranks of its victims. Now, I don't like to necessarily bring up human trafficking. It's a terrible thing. It's something we should be burdened by. And I'm so glad to see the ministries that have been raised up in the last 15, 20 years. Generate Hope is right here in San Diego. They've rescued several and give them an education. There's others that are well-known that you could find out if that's which should be a burden on all of our hearts. Because God hates oppressors, right? This nation was oppressing the Jews, and it's being destroyed. And so what does it say? Verse 5, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. That Lord of hosts is a title God frequently uses throughout the Old Testament, the Jehovah of hosts, indicating his power and supremacy in all things. Jehovah does not mince words. Look what he says. I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. What's he saying? I'm going to utterly humiliate you for the wickedness that you have done. It fits the crime, right? All the sexual crime. Now they're going to be exposed, as it were, with the skirt. Again, it's metaphorical language, but you get the idea. It fits the crime. God will act in perfect justice. There's nothing hidden from his sight, we learn in Hebrews, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So do not think that when you're committing a sin, somehow God doesn't see You children, maybe you say, well, but but the lights were off. I turned off the lights so God can't see. No, that's folly, right? Because God sees everything at once. So the Lord says he will give them shameful misery, even putting filth on them, exposing the shame that is there. Similar text is in Jeremiah 13. So I myself have also stripped your skirts over your face, that your shame may be seen. And then verse 7, the last two clauses there. Who will grieve for her, and where will I seek comforters for you? 
Where, where are they? Where, where are those that are going to come? Right? <laughs> there are none to bring comfort to such a wicked city. The self-indulgence and lack of self-control is a mark of a declining culture. Wow, does that remind you of our culture? <laughs> Being given to passions, right? Oftentimes without limitation. Unashamed sexual perversion all around us, right? Um, defining your gender is not anything biological anymore. It's just however you feel. Uh, God's given us over as a nation in many ways to this utter wickedness. It is true that God is patient. It is true that he's slow to anger. Nineveh had turned its back on God. And we largely have turned our back on God and the West. And as it says in Romans 1, God gave them over to the sinful desires and sexual impurity. May God help us. So Nineveh wiped out, right? The crimes being listed there. And then uh, secondly, verses 8 to 11, Nineveh was proud and arrogant. Destruction was sure for them, just as surely as this other city was destroyed. The Lord says through Nahum, because you can just imagine, they're hearing the words of this prophecy, or reading it, or whatever, but you can just imagine um, them, them saying, come on, don't you know who we are? Don't you know the kingdoms that we've destroyed? And so the Lord says through Nahum, I want to remind you of a city named Thebes, or no Amon, um, so it's the city of Thebes here. It's a well-known city. And he says, I, I want to give you a, a history lesson. It was a huge city that was like Nineveh about 50 years before. Perhaps Nineveh would think that this could never happen to them, these, uh, the prophecies. But, um, and they would remind themselves of all the kingdoms that they destroyed and that they are now the strongest city in the, in the entire world. And they've become proud and when you're proud, you're not vulnerable. And so they say, this will never happen. And so what God says to the, through the prophet is, that, let me give you a real-life example. You want a, a real-life example? Let me give you a real-life example. Another city that also was too strong to be conquered was wiped out. You do well. We do well to learn the lessons of history. Nations rise. Nations fall. We see it all around us, Right? But God says, I'm going to give you a real-life example. So he, he, notice the question. Are you better than no Ammon? The NAS is no Ammon, but it's Thebes. I think the ESV is Thebes. Are you better? The word there for better is, are you more attractive? Are you more pleasing? Or the New English translation has, are you more secure than what Thebes were? Which might be a good translation in light of the context. Thebes was also known for its strength and all the warlike uh, allies of the nations around. He lists here, it was situated by the waters of the Nile. The water surrounded her, a rampart with the sea, whose wall consisted of the sea. And look at all these allies. Ethiopia was her might, Egypt too. And so what he's saying is, is even that city had all these natural defenses and natural allies and yet it was utterly destroyed in 663 B.C. And oh, by the way, Nineveh, you know this story well. You're the ones that conquered them. 
So he brings up an example of a major superpower type city that the Ninevites went in to kill and uh, to wipe out. So they would remember all these allies, Egypt to the north, Ethiopia to the south, Put and Somalia and Libya also around as allies. God is against such arrogance. And so such a city like this, like Nineveh, can't be destroyed, can it? So he's asking through the prophet, do you remember, are you better? Are you, are you more secure than even this city? Can it be overthrown? Yes, the same fate awaits Nineveh. Because it says, yet even Thebes, or she, became an exile. She went into captivity. Also, her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. What horror. So instead of killing the adults, what they did is, as the adults looked on, they took all of their children, all the offspring, on each and every, the head of every street, and slaughtered the children. Why? so that they would lose heart. What horror, what devastation. And then, of course, it says here, they cast lots for the honorable men. So the great men, the strong men, the men of reputation, whatever they, they sold, they, they, um, they sold and they cast lots for them. And so God says, do you remember this? Do you remember? Do you? And what about us? God says to us, those that might be in rebellion to God, those that may not be converted yet, do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? You will stand before God. But God is merciful. He's slow to anger. If you will but repent and come running to Jesus Christ, that you would come running to this blessed Redeemer, precious Redeemer, seems like I see Him on Calvary's tray, tree, wounded and bleeding, Four sitters pleading, blind and unheeding, dying for me. The only way you'll know if Christ died for you is if you repent and come to Christ in faith. Our recent Sunday school series on the Order Salutis uh, was so helpful in understanding how does God save us, right? So, none will escape. And Nineveh would not escape. And so it says in verse 11, you too will become drunk. That doesn't mean that they said, let's throw a party and drink excessively. That doesn't mean what that, that's not what that means. You too will become drunk. You will be hidden. You too will search for refuge from the enemy. What this is indicating is God's wrath. If, for example, Psalm 75 and verse 8. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and its wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. So defeated Assyria would seek for a place to hide. Even as it says right there, you will be hidden. You will search for refuge from the enemy. But implication, you will find none. Well, that's um, our second point. Let's come to our final point. Nineveh was severely wounded without any sympathy from anyone. The prophet Nahum moves from metaphors, uh, moves from metaphors to a historical analogy, and now he attacks the illusion of their security by asking rhetorical questions. He mocks them. It's a, called a taunt. 
It's Nahum's taunt to this nation, where he's just rubbing it in their face, as it were. The prophet moves from a city so laden with guilt. And what does he do? He taunts their military, their merchants, and their leaders in these final verses. Nineveh, remember, is is well known from another book of the Bible, Jonah, right? And about 120 to 140 years earlier, the whole entire nation had repented, city had repented. And so um, Jonah warns of coming judgment. They repent, and God relents. So what, what are the metaphors? We'll go through these rather quickly. He says here in verse 12, all your fortifications, all your fortifications are like fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they will fall into the eater's mouth. What is he demonstrating here? He's demonstrating that their military will not be able to stand up against this. And just as a fortress will be removed, like, like when you shake a fig tree and the ripe figs fall off, the enemy's there to devour. That's the picture that's being given here. Verse 13, behold, your people are women in your midst. It's it should better translated your troops or warriors or armies, as it's translated in other translations. Uh, those troops and armies that have conquered all these other nations, well, they're going to be like weak, unarmed women in comparison to what would happen. And so um, as the Babylonians would come in and, and destroy them, Reminded of Isaiah 19:16, and in that day the Egyptians will become like a woman, and they will tremble, and they will be in dread because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which He is going to wave over them. So the troops would become like women. The gates of the land would be open wide to your enemies. Fire consumes the gates. So the gates are open wide. And then in verse 14, it's as though, and here this is just. Hilarious in my way, but Nahum is, is, is call, giving a battle cry. What does he say? Come on, Nineveh, let's get it together. Look at what he says. Five imperatives in this verse here. <coughs> Excuse me. Draw for yourself water for the siege. Strengthen your fortifications. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold and fire will consume you. And so this battle cry that's arrogant the fortress would be destroyed and they would become worthless according to the babylonian records Nineveh was after it was destroyed it was set on fire and burned to the ground then in the end of verse 15 you see multiply yourself like the creeping locust multiply yourself like the swarming locust you know we just finished the book of joel you know the whole locust invasion a vivid reminder here but here the idea is just the multiplication you know, how they multiply and become such a huge um, amount in a swarm in a, in a small amount of time. So he continues to taunt them. And then in verses uh, 18 and 19, we see Nahum ends with a mocking lament to the leaders. Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains. And there was no one to regather them. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. 
All who hear about you will clap their hands over you, for on whom has not your evil passed continually? Nahum sarcastically laments the end of Nineveh. He directs it toward the kings and the leaders there. Even the, uh, the previous kings that have written and boasted of how brutal they were. The wounds are incurable, and yet it is indeed even fatal. I think of Proverbs 1 where um, it says in verse 26, I will also laugh at your calamity. This is coming for the Lord. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes in like a storm and your calamity like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish can come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will then seek me diligently, but will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord. No doubt there might have been some, quote, jailhouse conversions as the city was being destroyed, and, and some have heard of Yahweh, and, and they see what's going on, and they, they cry out for relief, but they would not have any, they would not receive any relief. And, you know, Nahum here, it would be interesting to fellowship with him in heaven, but look at this. Uh, and all who hear about your devastation will clap their hands, give an applause at their utter destruction. And then Nahum ends the book with the rhetorical question. Do you see it there, the very last line? For on whom has not your evil passed continually? You know what the only other book of the Bible that ends with a rhetorical question like that is another book of the Bible directed towards Nineveh, Jonah, right? And it says at the very, in 4.11, it says, And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people? Shall I not have compassion? And then this one ends like this as well. Well, um, Martin Luther said that these consolations ought to fill us all with courage in any need, so that we may have confidence and trust absolutely that the Lord will not allow foes of God's word to ever prevail against us. That's the heart-strengthening message that we have as believers. So we've seen the crimes listed. We've seen the punishment executed. We don't know exactly when he prophesied, most likely months before. So imagine them receiving this prophecy in whatever form they did, and then their devastation would come. Well, a couple concluding comments as we wrap up. We've learned that from Nahum that God is kind and merciful to his people, that he protects them, that he will, he's a God of vengeance even. But we've also learned that he is severe and just. God's severity is on display here. He's slow to anger, and he warns all to repent or suffer judgment. Where are you today? Where are you before God today? Are you a friend of God? Are you an enemy of God? It's, 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 it's a terrible thing to hear. As he says here several times, I am against you, the thrice holy God. When he says that, it should shock terror in your very bones. 
I'm just curious if even today there's someone sitting here that knows they're an enemy with God. Why would you not flee to Christ and repent of your sins, throwing away the suitcases of your good works and coming and saying, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Because if you come with the suitcases of your good works and try to lay out all that you've done throughout your lifetime before a holy God, he's going to say, away from me, I never knew you. We're saved exclusively by Christ, faith alone, grace alone. God doesn't overlook sin. He doesn't overlook it. God would allow Babylon that came in and executed the Ninevites to grow stronger and stronger, and then his wrath was poured out upon them. And then it was the Medes, and then it was the Greeks, and then it was the Romans, right? And, and so God raises nations and destroys nations. God executes enemies, or executes justice on his enemies as well. So all of this type of stuff and judgment is a picture of the great and final day of the Lord, which is coming, and we need to be prepared. Remember that just as Jonah preached to Nineveh, the city repented and God spared it. If you're not a Christian today, actively trusting in Christ today, come, he will spare you. But if you stiff arm and reject and turn your back upon such a gracious offer, Certain doom awaits you. But today the door of mercy is wide open. Isn't it beautiful? The door of mercy is wide open. You can come running through it. And he will save you. Jesus died for sinners that deserve hell. God demonstrated his own love to you. That that even when we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you even for this book, this oft-neglected book of the Bible, Nahum the prophet, Lord. Thank you for the lessons that we've learned these four weeks. Lord, uh, we thank you for your steadfast love for your people, that you forsake us not. Receive our praise in Jesus' name. Amen.